Put knowledge to work and grow your business with CIT. From transportation to healthcare to manufacturing, CIT offers commercial lending, leasing, and treasury management services for small and middle market businesses. Learn more at CIT.com. Put knowledge to work. Welcome to Deal of the Week, Bloomberg's podcast on the world of mergers, acquisitions, and investments. I'm your host, Alex Sherman, and in the words of Michael Jordan, I'm back. And needless to say, my return is at least as important as Jordan's was to the game of basketball. Uh, After handing off the podcast to Jeff McCracken and Ed Hammond, who both did an utterly fantastic job hosting this show, I'm back from paternity leave. Uh, I missed the show. Not sure if you listeners missed me at all, but I'm happy to be back. Today's guest is Scott Rostin, who teaches investment bank hires and business school students how to do financial analysis. It's fascinating, and I'm sure uh, very interesting to those listening to this podcast about how exactly investment bankers and corporate development employees do what they do. So we'll get to him and my colleague, Brooke Sutherland, in just a few minutes. But first, it's time for What's the Big Deal? And joining us is a man who is becoming a consistent presence on this show, Ed Hammond. Ed, welcome. Nice to see you. Nice to be back. And nice to have you probably back in the chair, because it's much less daunting being on this Honestly, side Honestly, I, th- I think of you as like when Jon Stewart went out and then John Oliver took over, uh, uh, not only because you're British, but because uh, I'm sure that the general audience will be clamoring for you to take over my spot from this point forward, as, as they did with John Oliver. Um, but you're on the other side of this again, uh, and this week we're talking airlines, a story you broke. Uh, your day job, uh, breaking M&A stories. Virgin America receiving takeover offers from JetBlue and Alaska Air Group. And I guess a deal could be announced as soon as next week, right? Yeah. So we reported, I think, first, some point last week, kind of end of last week, just for the long weekend, that uh, Virgin America was in play, that they had been approached and actually on the back of that had gone out and hired advisors to sort of explore options and kind of put themselves up for sale. And then obviously this week, yesterday, we reported um, that JetBlue and Alaska are the two sort of serious companies around this. It's still possible someone else emerges as a sort of left the field bidder. But as far as we know, right now, it's Alaska and JetBlue. And I think bids are due in by the end of this week. What's going on here? In other words, why does Virgin America want to sell? Well, the question is whether or not they wanted to sell before they were approached or whether someone approached them with a price they felt was so compelling that they they thought there was no option but to to, to sell or at least consider a sale. So as far as we know, they were not out there soliciting bids or even sort of softly sounding out potential buyers. They were approached unsolicited. Uh, We're not sure who approached them, but I think a fair bet would be between Alaska and JetBlue. And off the back of that, they went out and they hired a bank and they said, look, can you run the numbers and sort of see if it makes sense? And if we can find enough other people who are interested, maybe we can get an auction going. And that's what they did. And it looks like it's come down to these two bidders. And, you know, look, we, we said in our story yesterday, and I suppose this is always a, a fair thing to assume, it's, it's possible that Virgin decide they don't want to sell and that they pull the plug on this process. But right now, it seems like they're pretty serious, pretty wedded to the idea that, you know, there is enough interest in the market to get a decent price for the asset. And so what is the rationale for these two particular airlines? Why would JetBlue want it? Why would Alaska Air want it? Well, both of them have a sort of not dissimilar profile to Virgin, although both are are slightly larger in the case of Alaska, uh, quite substantially larger. Um, 
But essentially, neither of them are complete national carriers. So this would give both JetBlue and Alaska an increased West Coast presence, which is something which would be uh, would be hugely important to them in terms of expanding their networks. It's also something that would allow them to compete much more credibly with the kind of, I suppose, what we think of as the big global carriers, the uh, United, the American Airlines, um, the Deltas. And, and, you know, none of those guys could really realistically play in this, this auction. I guess it's possible that if... Um, Alaska or, or JetBlue end up buying it. One of those guys, one of the bigger guys, could end up picking up some routes off them. But I don't think e- any of them would be in a position to buy it outright. So airlines are doing a lot better recently because the like, fuel costs are are lower, and therefore the stocks have been doing better. Does this make it a good time for an airline to sell, or a bad time for an airline to sell? Well, what's interesting with Virgin America is this is a company that only went public sort of a year and a half ago. So it's it's it, it almost doesn't have the sort of uh, public market history for us to ascertain whether or not it's at a good value now compared to its historic value because it's 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 only been through like a quarter of one cycle. I think it probably is a reasonable time for an airline to sell. I think you know the valuations on these things, as you say, are doing reasonably well, partly on the back of the cheap fuel, partly just because consumer demand has gone back up a bit. And I think the other fact here that is very important and that you know we can't discount from all of this is is sort of the Branson element. I mean, he obviously is a huge driving force behind this. Um, he's Richard the, Branson, ri- the Richard founder, Branson. CEO. Yes, the yes, my countryman and the billionaire yes. and entrepreneur and personal skydiver, right? Radio and space flights and. Coke cans and all of that stuff. Anyway, he, um, I think, is hugely important in this whole process. So he, for whatever reason, may have decided that this is the right moment to sell. Um, and sort of who who knows what, what drives his decision-making process, but I suppose we can assume that it was based on something intelligent. So you mentioned that seemingly that a company approached Virgin America, and that's sort of what kicked off this process. Uh, I'm curious... I'm trying to think now. We have not really seen an airline deal in a little while. So this sort of came out of the blue. It did. I'm tempted to say out of the jet blue, but that would be out too of the corny. jet blue. Yeah, no, it did. It did come out of the blue, and it's you know, it's it's a good point. We we haven't seen a deal for a long time. It's such a consolidated industry. I think particularly here in the US, there's there's not really that many deals that can get done, and the the talk has been. For as long as I've been covering M and A, the talk has been that the only deals that could happen would be a major looking at a regional carrier or two regional carriers getting together to, for scale. And I guess that's exactly what we are seeing here. And you know, for all the reasons that it's always made sense, it makes sense now today. I think you know, the, to your point, the last piece of sort of transactional activity of scale that we saw in the airlines industry was probably Virgin America's initial public offering, which was 18 months ago. Other than sort of the forced uh, deal, but that, that was the contested deal with US Air and American too, right? That was right around the same Right. So that, well, that predates it slightly. That was, yeah. yeah, that was sort of just, I think that was about two years ago or a yeah. bit over when that all kicked off. But yeah, I mean, it, that, was, that was the last sort of significant deal. And in some ways, that was kind of the the, the sort of killer for the the big deals in the space. I think after that, it was seen that, you know, it would be very, very difficult to have a sort of significant merger between the airlines. Because much like the cable industry, which obviously you're very, very familiar with, um, there's just not any big deals left that would meet sort of even very loose regulatory approval. Ed Hammond, a pleasure. Thank you for joining us. Uh, I hope you have enjoyed becoming such a frequent part of this show. It is likely to continue. Happy to come back anytime. Always Uh, fun. Ed Hammond, uh, M&A reporter for Bloomberg. Thanks, Ed. Up next, Scott Roston, a former M&A banker at Merrill Lynch who now runs a financial analysis training program for Wall Street. But first, 
a quick word from our sponsor. Put knowledge to work and grow your business with CIT. From transportation to healthcare to manufacturing, CIT offers commercial lending, leasing, and treasury management services for small and middle market businesses. Learn more at CIT.com. Put knowledge to work. We're joined today by Scott Roston, a former M&A banker at Merrill Lynch and the founder of Training the Street which teaches investment bank hires and business school students the ins and outs of financial analysis. Topics that he teaches include accounting, Excel modeling, corporate valuations, and how to structure M&A transactions. And I also want to introduce Brooke Sutherland, Bloomberg Gadfly columnist who focuses on M&A analysis and has quoted Scott in a few of her articles in the past. Hi, Brooke. Hi, Alex. Thanks for having me. And hi, Scott. Welcome to Deal of the Week. Thank you. So to begin, let's tell let's talk a little bit about training the street in terms of what exactly uh, does training the street uh, do in terms of its teaching processes and what are its goals? Yeah, well, uh, first of all, thank you for having me here. Um, but the as the name implies, we specialize in training Wall Street professional type skills. So the accounting you mentioned, corporate valuation, um, doing financial modeling in Excel, um, how the capital markets work. Um, and we teach them to a variety of audiences. Our bread and butter, which you can imagine, would be the junior level new hires at investment banks. Um, so right out of undergrad and right out of business school. But we also do workshops at academic institutions. MBA schools are big clients of ours. Um, and we also do it for consulting firms and law firms. So it's it's more of the skills we teach. Are We want to give people practical hands-on skills they can then apply to make their financial analysis work life and, and the insights that they'll gain for that a lot more productive and efficient. So what does that mean from a practical perspective? In other words, are you going into the offices of these firms? How long are you staying there? It it, it depends on the client. I mean, we can do things from two hours to three, four weeks. Um, So if it's a global investment bank's new hire program, typically in July and August, we're usually on site for two to three weeks during our programs. Um, But we are uh, also at a business school. We'll be there for maybe one day, two days as part of a weekend boot camp. So I'm I'm fascinated by this to some degree. And also, it's a great topic for this podcast. So I went to business school. And I'm curious how, but obviously didn't get into investment banking, how how prepared are junior investment bankers that have gone to business school to do their jobs before you enter the picture. We bring a practical bridge to it. I think that's the best way. We often work with the Career Management Center, the finance club, or a corporate finance professor um, to bring practical elements to their course study. So the foundation they get in class is, is excellent, and they'll give them their, the, the toolbox that we need, but then we're going to show them more of the how-to. So you understand, so a perfect example would be you, every MBA takes accounting classes, um, but, it's, but it's broad managerial-based accounting, right? And it might get to a financial statement analysis class at a you know, second level or an elective, but they're not trained you to be accountants. So when we come in, we'll say, all right, let's take those skills you you've gained from analyzing a company's financial statement and put it into a M&A analyses or trying to calculate their market cap on a diluted basis or understanding this financial disclosure around their options or how do you normalize for a non-recurring item. So it's But it's giving them practical hands-on skills they would be expected to do when they're on the desk doing a M&A transaction or an IPO or a leveraged buyout, whatever the case may be. 
are generally all the investment bankers at the major investment banks using the same uh, valuation techniques, or is there some difference depending on sort of what shop you're at on how people value companies? Broadly speaking, it's similar. Now, there will be different perspectives that could weigh into this, um, certain, and, and that can vary. You know, for example, discounted cash flow analysis is a very popular tool people use, but the problem with DCF is, is uh, you it's only as good as the forecast you can put into it. So that usually makes sense in more mature, predictable businesses, but then the market already has a pretty reasonable valuation on those. You'll see there the trading multiples tend to be in a tighter band. So a DCF doesn't work well for a Tesla because the projections are all over the map. But with that that comes opportunity, especially if you're more of an investment analyst and you're on the buy side, I'm trying to do some you know, research on it. But, so, but broadly speaking, they're teaching these similar types of skill sets. So comparables analysis and how they trade versus their peers, precedent transactions, how do they look versus precedent transactions, um, discounted cash flow analysis, could a financial sponsor take it private, what would a leveraged buyout um, price be, and then the M&A analysis in the, in the affordability realm. But you know, firms will have their own twists and turns with it, like, um, but it's more nuance of the way they like to present the results or the terms they like to use, but the core skills are fairly comparable. I know you also keep tabs on what's happening in the current M&A environment, and last year was obviously a very big deal for M&A. Very big, yes. In terms of volume Large, and yes. uh, record mega mergers. And what would be your sort of key takeaways from what we saw? Are there any lessons that you take from that that you're trying to pass on to your students? Yeah, and, and we try to also t- talk about to set the foundation for it. Is there, you know, Roughly speaking, you need you know, main pieces or, or supports of the table that need to hold up M&A. Number one, companies need to have the ability to finance. Interest rates for many years now have been at record lows, um, you know, on both a relative basis and an absolute basis. So that's going to give, especially investment grade companies, a huge ability. A lot of you hear people use the phrase "dry powder" because they can borrow cheaply and therefore um, afford to pay more. Um, number two, as the equity markets have done well, it gives them another piece of currency they can use their shares to which is currency. And, you know, it's common sense. You know, you want you know, everybody's hers. You, know, you want to uh, you know buy low and sell high. Um, so it's the same thing with companies. If you're going to issue your shares, you want to do it at a high point. So with that high share price, they have that acquisition currency. And then the third piece is the, I think was the the trickier one, is the animal spirits need to be there. Confidence of the CEOs and senior executive, confidence at the board level. So if you go back from the last, let's say, go back to the financial crisis, the last big M&A boom was pre-financial crisis. M&A stops during the financial crisis because the ability of finance wasn't there, stock prices were falling, and then confidence was going away. You know, The analogy I used in class at the time was, you're not going to build a new addition on your house when your kitchen's on fire. So everybody's focused on, let's get the kitchen fire taken care of. But once you're like, oh, okay, now it's, you know, it's 2010, maybe 2011, we're out of some of the depths. People are like, hey, wait a minute, the fire wasn't as bad as we thought. The wiring here is still okay. Hey, that addition could make some sense. And you've seen the M&A then start to pick up a little bit. But I think the lag effect was because of the confidence there. All three of those hit very strong in a perfect storm. One could also argue there was some pent-up demand sure. from the financial crisis that was kind of working its way through the system. You think of a rubber band that's been pulled back for a while, it's going to snap back. Um, but you know, thinking going forward, interest rates are still there. You know, the Fed is talking about when to raise and how to get back to normalization. You know, that's still in, on top of mind. But the interest rates are still low. Stock market volatility, as you know, when you know the early this year, when the stock market's in February, you know, coming down, it's going to shut things off. It's going to put everything to the back burner um, because that currency goes down, but also the the confidence level comes back. 
And going back a little bit to your time at Merrill Lynch, because I know while you were there, you worked on the uh, Conrail Norfolk Southern deal, um, which is a very interesting transaction, um, and especially interesting at this time because we're seeing another railroad merger possibly coming to fruition. Um, I mean, I wondered if you could talk a little bit about the experience of working on that Conrail Norfolk Southern deal, especially because it did start out as a hostile transaction Mm -hmm. and, you know, what sorts of strategy are involved in dealing with those type of deals? Yeah. Well, depending on your perspective, it actually started as a friendly transaction with CSX <laughs> and Conrail formally coming together for a friendly deal. But Norfolk Southern, I was on the Merrill Lynch was co-representing with J.P. Morgan, um, Norfolk Southern. Um, that was actually the first thing I worked on on the Friday before Labor Day, 1995. And it was the last thing I worked on on June 30th, 1997, at the end of my two years. And I probably spent... Um, if I averaged 100 to 120 hour work weeks, I probably spent on average 40 to 50 to 60 hours on railroad stuff. Um, so I learned a lot about railroads um, with them. Um, it was an amazing learning experience. Um, the hostile aspects, I, I often tell people in class when we do talk about um, hostels and, and a high level of how it works of, look, I hope all of you get staffed on a hostile transaction because it's a tremendous learning experience. And I hope none of you get staffed on a hostile transaction because it's going to ruin your life um, because your time demands are on it. So the one thing I learned, you know, the, 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 the anecdotal story of how that even happened, I don't remember the exact date, but it was October um, 1996 when I actually stayed. I pulled an all-nighter at work. I was asleep at my desk at, you know, 6.37 in the morning on another transaction, on a fairness opinion that I was helping out on, when uh, CSX and Conrail, the news came across the wire. And someone printed out the Bloomberg story from this and placed it right basically on my head because I was asleep at my, my keyboard. And when I woke up and I looked at it, I was like, is this a joke? Like, how did you make this look exactly like a Bloomberg <laughs> printout? And she was like, it's no joke. That's your deal, right? I was like, not our deal. <laughs> this is CSX in Conrail. We're Norfolk Southern. And uh, so that just scrambled things um, very, very, very quickly. So there was a lot of work around valuation. I mean, there was a bidding war, as you know. So mm-hmm. our initial bid was $100 per share all cash and then raised to 110 then raised to 115 um, things were moving very quickly. I mean, they, when CSX would raise their bid, you know, a couple times within 24, 48 hours, we bumped ours up again. So just, were you just ready to go? You had your. We're, you were we're, they were basically yeah, and that's the way you're going to go into it. You, you need to think about this as it, it, it's a public relations battle, but it's also kind of like a warfare almost. I mean, and I don't mean that with actual guns, obviously, but you've got to go into thinking what are the possibilities. So when we made our first initial bid, we're thinking at what point could we go up to? So we've already got the financing team thinking, if this goes contested, which it probably is, what? how much room do we have in the reserve? And you know, the personal finance example would be when you're buying a home, you might put an initial bid for, let's say, $300,000, but in the back of your mind, you're knowing, I could go up to 325, 350, and I've already got pre-approval from the mortgage with that. Mm-hmm. So, but your initial bid is still 300 because you want to get it for the best price possible. So that's part of the rationale and part of the thinking. So we're already trying to think one, two, three steps ahead, and also trying to anticipate what the other side is going to do, which makes it very difficult. So are, are you sort of experiencing a little bit of deja vu as we see sort of another <laughs> railroad? I, I, I've been saying to hostile. my team, like, railroads are always cool. Like, they never die. But, but interestingly, and, and, and Brooke and I have talked about this before, that if you go back 20 plus years ago, people were talking about a transcontinental railroad then. 
And you know the the history. You know, to think about the consolidation. You have you know Union Pacific buying Southern Pacific, and you have them buying Chicago Northwestern. You have Burlington Northern acquiring Santa Fe. So that kind of consolidated the West, if you will, to basically to Burlington Northern. And, and Union Pacific. Now Burlington Northern is part of Berkshire Hathaway. You have the two Canadians of, of Canadian Pacific and Canadian National. And then on the east, you had Norfolk Southern and CSX, roughly speaking, in the southeast together, um, you know, roughly speaking, east of the Mississippi to Chicago, and then back. But then Conrail was the jewel asset because they had effectively a monopoly on the New York City metropolitan area. Mm-hmm. And that's what made them extremely valuable. They're the only one who could get freight to the New York City metropolitan area. So for CSX and Norfolk, it was basically, if one gets it, the other is going to have to do something because it strategically would be very painful to have your main competitor have access to the Northeast and you not. So by carving up Conrail, um, it satisfied the antitrust regulators because now you have two competitors in there. And now, fast forward to today, you basically have six major railroads in, in the United States and Canada, two in the east, CSX and Norfolk Southern, who have, roughly speaking, similar footprints, the two in the west of the American railroads, roughly speaking, similar footprints, and then the two Canadians. So there's only going to be two possibilities of transcontinental railroads. One involves Norfolk Southern, and one involves CSX. But there's four other possibilities that have the west what to do. So Canadian National is being very aggressive about trying to make that happen because one can think that only one domino is going to fall and then people might say, hey, wait a minute, that's it. Or one could say, if one domino falls, then the other is going to have to fall. And again, those two dominoes are Norfolk Southern and CSX. I mean, what is your take at this point on whether that first domino can fall? Because that's sort of what this all hinges on is, you know, could you get regulatory approval? That's a great question. And I'm proud to say that I'm not a (laughs) regulatory expert. Um, We were always told as, um, you know, as bankers of, you know, never put the word antitrust down, like, you know, let someone else handle that. So you you have to be careful. But look, that is the question. Um, Financially, I think the transaction can make sense. Mm -hmm. Um, There is definitely operational efficiencies can happen. But I think that is exactly what would scare the regulators because will that enhance or hurt competition? So even when we were discussing um, with Norfolk and Conrail and CSX and the battle back in the, you know, the, the late 90s with that, the competition we were thinking about from the trucks and they're not going to just take freight off of I-95, they're going to lower their prices and, and fight back with those things. So we've got to think about this from a, a truly competitive dynamic and i think that is the big question of would it pass antitrust muster and i don't think anybody knows really. and no I'm one knows asking you for it, all the it, answers you, you, but i don't you, think you don't know and, and and then and then layer in another complication it's an election year so with the new administration coming in um, in January of 2017, like that could change things dramatically, one way or the other. So, so who knows? So there's a lot of uncertainty around that, and you just don't know. One more question on your uh, your, your experience from being an M&A banker with that hostile takeover. Do you remember, was there any point or sort of specific incident, uh, anecdotally, where Norfolk Southern was like, this thing is slipping away from us, or there was some sort of panic being involved in a transaction where suddenly... This, this thing has sort of become a, a bidding war and starting to maybe spiral out of control. Yeah. Um, the 
a couple things do come to mind with that. And the the first is uh, um, David Good, who was the then chairman and CEO of Norfolk Southern, um, used to refer to it as his railroad. And I and I remember at the time being kind of struck by that. That you know he he didn't found it. It was along you know way, you know it was much much older than him. But he had grown up through the ranks and was so proud of and the employees and what they've done and the reputation. You know back then they were considered you know the best operator and were very very good from an operating perspective. Um, but he always referred to it as my railroad. My railroad. He at one of those strategy meetings you mentioned earlier that I was able to come to. Um, you know, we were, uh, and, and I don't exactly remember if it was when we'd made our initial bid and CSX had made their second bid or, or something like that. Um, but he, we were debating what the, the bidding strategy to be. You know, should we bid, bid how high and whatnot? And he stopped the room and said to them, "Look, I had a nightmare last night, and I woke my wife up in the middle of the night and said, what would happen to my railroad?'" I always refer to it as my railroad. If CSX won, we can't let him win. And that's when Jack Levy, who was the head of Merrill Lynch's M&A at the time, who um, has you know, just recently retired from his position as a vice chairman of mergers at Goldman Sachs, um, was you know, our senior banker, basically pounded the table and was like, we're going to 110, we're going to 115. I don't exactly remember which one it was, but that's what pushed it through. He's like, then you need to send the signal, you need to send it strong, and it needs to be, and that's what dictated the strategy for that. So there are those times and those opportunities where you're you're going to see, and it's and it's and it's almost like an existential out of body experience because like everything stops for a second, and and I still remember that. Like when I when I tell that story, I, I think it's like, oh my gosh, that was recently. You know, that was back in you know 1996. Right. And, and it's but it but it in my memory it's so fresh that it's right there. Scott Rostin, founder of Training the Street, former M and A banker at Merrill Lynch, and Brooke Sutherland, Bloomberg columnist uh, for Bloomberg Gadfly. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. So that's it for this episode of Deal of the Week. Hope you enjoyed it. You can expect more Bloomberg reporters and M&A professionals who are doing deals real-time and working with those that are doing deals real-time. And until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal at Bloomberg.com, as well as on iTunes, any app you use to listen to podcasts. And please take a minute to rate and review the show while you're there. Also, follow me on Twitter at Sherman4949. Ed Hammond is at EdHammondNY. And Brooke Sutherland is at BLSUV. That's at B-L-S-U-T-H. See you next week. Put knowledge to work and grow your business with CIT. From transportation to healthcare to manufacturing, CIT offers commercial lending, leasing, and treasury management services for small and middle market businesses. Learn more at CIT.com. Put knowledge to work.